0: Hi, I'm Maina Raman wilms and you're listening to The Decibel, from the Globe and Mail. It was a year ago today, when the Tecumloops to First Nation announced that they had found 215 potential unmarked graves around the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. They've since adjusted the number to around 200, but the effects of that announcement were felt across the country. Norman Ritaskett, a survivor of the Kamloops School, said that the announcement and the response that came from it gave him a chance to tell stories that few people had heard before. Okay,
1: it was 1952, I was born in 1944, and um, my dad was out cutting hay and I was out there running in the field and the, the chickens were out there chasing bugs and grasshoppers or whatever was there. And the truck from Lillowat came with uh, probably, I would say, up to 15 kids in the back of a stock truck. They seen me running across the field, so they grabbed me and threw me in the back of the truck. And then away we went. I It's like... Wow, even though I was young and hadn't been ever out in general public or anything, I had a feeling of abandonment because my mom and dad walked back into the house. And I couldn't communicate because I didn't even know what language I spoke. I really didn't know what language I spoke. And every time I opened my mouth, in the school, I was beaten. I didn't even know my own name. My mom was mom, my dad was bedad, and I was choo-choo because my dad made me a little train out of uh, pork and bean cans, and that was my toy. And um, when I got to the school in the morning, to have a roll call. Norman retasked it. So after about a week of roll call and nobody responding to the name, they gave me a number. Now I'm number 16. So roll call, they call number 16. Nobody knows what a 16 is. So then you start getting beaten for being stupid. It, it, life was terrible it? other kids were running away, but I was too small and I was too scared. It's a hard story to tell, but now I feel free that I can tell it.
0: Our colleague, Melissa Tate, Caught up with Norman a few days ago to talk about those early days after the announcement, which he and others just call 215. He also talked about how this year has changed him.
1: On the very first day, I spent the whole day there in front of the monument and praying in my own way, and then I went back again. And people started coming and people started coming. And within a few days, there were people that drove all the way from Northern Ontario to be with us, to stand in unity with us. And then a total stranger would come by and ask me if I was a survivor there and I'd tell him a story that I would have never, ever told anybody before. It freed a certain spirit in me. When 2.15 happened, I was free to show my emotions. When I, I go speaking or something, to have people listen, it's never happened before. Because to them, if I told the same story three years ago, it's fiction. The story hasn't changed. The listener has changed.
0: One of the things that's changed this past year is that Indigenous communities have finally been given the space to look for missing children. Dr. Keisha Supernant is one of the people at the forefront of looking for unmarked graves. She's a Métis archaeologist and director of the Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology at the University of Alberta. She's also chair of the Unmarked Graves Working Group with the Canadian Archaeological Association. She's going to explain how she actually looks for unmarked graves, what happens once they're found, and what communities still need in order to move forward. This is The Decibel. (laughs) Keisha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You've been, of course, doing archaeology uh, alongside Indigenous communities for a long time now. Many of us have only really begun hearing about this over the past year. But but
2: when did you start looking for unmarked graves? I started looking for unmarked graves about four years ago now. And this really stemmed out of a long relationships with Indigenous communities doing archaeological work. So not unmarked graves work per se, but doing work around, you know, landscapes and sites of interest to Indigenous communities, very much working in a collaborative way and a community-led kind of way. But what really happened is communities just kept asking. Every time I'd go into community, they'd say, oh, there's a burial ground over here, but we don't know exactly where it is. Or there's a mass grave from the Spanish flu over here. Or there's, we think there's a historic cemetery over here, but there's no fences or markers left. Or there's the residential school. Can you help us figure out if there's graves around it?
0: Hmm. How did the announcement then from Kamloops change things for you and, and for your work? As you said, you know, you've been doing this for a while now, though. But what shifted last
2: year? Well... A lot changed after to come So prior to that we had done work around one residential school landscape in Muskaugan, Saskatchewan, and some results around that had come out in 2018 and 2019. And we had anticipated there would be more nations reaching out to us around residential schools, but what actually happened over the next six months after those first preliminary results from Muskaugan were announced is we actually got a number of calls about historic cemeteries or searching for lost burial sites not associated with residential schools in part because residential schools are complex to search uh, both because of their history, but because of the multiple nations involved uh, there needed to be, you know, there wasn't funding easily available to those communities for that. So they were looking at other kinds of landscapes. Mm. And so when the announcement was made from Tecumlis to Dishwetmec about their uh, discoveries, basically my phone started ringing off the hook, so to speak, or my inbox was full of requests. Because many nations have wanted to do this for a long time, but suddenly it was like, okay, now is the moment. Now is the time that we can get the resources, that that we can get momentum to help provide this knowledge around the specific locations of where some of these graves might be back to communities and to the general public. So over the past year, I've directly spoken with over 40 nations and organizations, everywhere from sort of telling them broadly about how the process might work to actually doing groundwork. Mm-hmm. So it's taken over a pretty large part of my professional life uh, since that announcement.
0: Wow. Uh, in, in March of this year, uh, I know Capoeino First Nation in Alberta announced that they had found 169 potential unmarked graves. And I know that you were the archaeologist who actually found those, those sites, Keisha. Can you walk me through that process a bit? What is, what is the first thing you do there?
2: So the whole process usually starts, once we've talked with leadership or whoever might be taking lead on, on these areas, is to actually go and do a community gathering of some kind. So in most cases, we go in and we meet survivors and elders and knowledge holders. We participate in ceremony. We do a presentation, again, about the nature of the work because there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding of what ground penetrating radar is and does. So we usually start there. That becomes a really important place for us to learn about the areas of concern. Community has a lot of knowledge about the areas that uh, children might be buried and they can help us narrow down and really target certain locations on the landscape. So we, we learn that at that first visit. My team also then wants to do a site assessment so our next step is to take the equipment out and make sure that it works in the in the area because it doesn't work everywhere and it works differently in different places. So until we test it, we don't know if it's going to be the most useful uh, geophysical tool is, in that way. Is that
0: dependent on what the landscape is? So like rocks, dense soil, that kind of thing?
2: It depends on a number of factors. Environmental conditions and soil are perhaps the most uh, significant. Certain types of soils... It just doesn't work well, but also the history of the land is really important. So what happened since the school was torn down, burned down, or if it's still standing, what happened around it? So are there any developments? Has there been any plowing? Has there been any modification of the land? Because again, that helps us then design an approach to this that takes those into account. And then once we've done the assessment, then we plan for kind of a first phase of ground searching. And this is areas of high priority that have, you know, elders and knowledge holders, survivors, the archive suggests, may have uh, useful information about where there could be graves. And we usually start there. Mm. And then we get out onto, into the community. There's usually ceremony to start. And then we go out to these landscapes and we set up our equipment and we usually spend, you know, anywhere from seven to ten days uh, collecting information mm. in often quite a painstaking fashion. It's quite a slow process. So at Capoeno, we spent six days doing survey. We mm-hmm. covered about an acre wow. of land. Okay. So it is a slow process then. It's a very, very slow process, for especially because we are using a specific method, where we're making sure that we don't miss an inch of the ground, basically. So that means a lot of coverage. So many, many lines in any given grid, basically one every 25 centimeters. Mm-hmm. So we might lay out, say, a 30 meter by 30 meter grid, and every 25 centimeters along that, we're pushing a GPR. And that just takes time. And what are we actually talking about when, when you're referencing
0: this equipment, the GPR, the ground penetrating radar? What exactly is this machinery like?
2: Basically, it's a small box of some kind inside which is an antenna that sends out a wave signal into the ground. So you basically place it on the ground. It sends this basically radio wave down Mm -hmm. and that wave hits things differently and bounces back differently. So if the wave is going down and it hits a rock, a lot of that wave bounces back and the antenna measures that. And certain things like metal, the entire signal bounces back. Other things, it just shows you subtle differences in, say, the soil, right? So if there's a layer of soil, the wave travels through that layer of soil. If that soil changes, the wave will change. And so what we're really looking for when we're searching for potential unmarked graves Mm. is disturbance that looks like a pit that would be a grave shaft, so that means we're looking for, a, you know, a hole that's been dug that's changed the composition of the soil. The radar can sometimes detect that. And then we're creating a three-dimensional map of the subsurface. So we're basically saying, OK, there's, there's a change here. It could be a grave. And as soon as you see kind
0: of one anomaly
2: then, does that indicate to you that it's a potential grave then? It really depends. So we can not do very much uh, on the fly, And this is actually one of the areas that is particularly challenging right now because there are some people who know how then to take the raw information and get it to a point where you can interpret it. But there's very few people who know how to interpret it for an unmarked grave. It's very specialized. So it gets really tricky when we're trying to interpret the uh, information that we've gathered.
0: And so, to go back to to Capuano First Nation that we talked about earlier, what exactly did
2: you see there then? So, in that uh, case, we basically mapped anomalies, and we found 169 total. And from those data, we were then it broke them down into three categories. And this is something my team does. There's no kind of, there's not yet a clear standard for this, but there's a number of folks working on trying to. Clarify how we interpret something as a grave. In our case, what we do is we look at certain traits, so certain types of anomalies, which have been found in other contexts where we know there's graves, say in a cemetery with a bunch of grave markers. Each one of those anomalies is identified by multiple people on our team. So we do it independently to to check. And then we classify them as either possible graves, where they might have one trait uh, and cross more than one line of GPR data, but we're not sure if it's a likely grave or not. Mm. Probable means it has multiple traits and has more indicators of the right depth and size and shape. And we only ever... classify something as a likely grave when there's an independent line of evidence. So for example, we're working in a cemetery at Mm Capowino. And in that context, we're finding results, we find anomalies. And then the likely graves in the cemetery were ones that had a surface depression. So you could actually see something on the surface, which showed that there was a dip in the ground. And when we had that information, we said, this is a likely grave.
0: Okay. And the, the findings that you had there, did that line up with what survivors had told you where they, they thought there would be graves?
2: Yes. I mean, we did spend a fair bit of our time in the community cemetery there because like at other locations, there are records that children who, were, who died at the school were buried in the community cemetery there. But the other areas that were of cons- most concern to survivors Um, Were areas where we did find anomalies. And one in particular had been pointed out by one of the elders in the community who had actually been involved in demolishing some of the buildings. And this was an area that was raised of significant concern to him. Mm -hmm. And that's where we found a number of probable uh, graves as well as some possible um, graves as well.
0: Outside of the cemetery, then we're
2: talking. It's outside of the cemetery. Yeah, it was near uh, one of the the school buildings that had been raised as a, a point of concern. Um, so not in the building itself, but uh, beside it, basically. Okay. Uh, several indigenous
0: communities uh, across the country have located unmarked graves in, in this way in the past year now, especially. What happens at the point after these graves are found?
2: I think it really depends on what. The survivors and the communities whose children attended the school collectively decide is next. There are definitely nations with whom we've worked who are primarily interested in marking and protecting and commemorating these locations, so as a way to do ceremony and provide some sense of healing. But there are others, even sometimes within those same communities, who want More information about who might be buried where uh, and who should be held accountable for their death. So, how did they die? Um, This is a really, really challenging question. And I am not an expert in this area. This is not my area of specialty. I think communities are right now grappling with what will it be possible to know using these technologies, using the scientific methods of geophysics or forensics. Versus what might be present in community knowledge or in the archive that can help. Along with finding unmarked
0: graves, I know you've also been putting together resources for communities. What information do you find that that they need to know right now at this point?
2: So I have been working as chair of the Canadian Archaeological Association's working group on unmarked graves to put together Information about the uses of different kinds of technology. And we give communities a sense of from our experience, myself and other colleagues who've done similar kinds of work, what we've seen on those journeys with communities and the importance of having not just the technology, but all the other pieces together. I think also the access to expertise so people who have experience in using these technologies that they can trust that they know will do a good job and frankly there has been a lack of national coordination on this front there's been money but then there hasn't necessarily been the same level of access to resources that aren't money like experts You've spoken before about how
0: you want to change the relationship between Indigenous people and archaeology. What exactly do you mean by that?
2: Well, as a Métis woman, what I really mean by that is supporting Indigenous communities to look to archaeology to support the kinds of questions and interests that they might have about their pasts where relevant. Archaeology has primarily been done on Indigenous pasts. We're really without Indigenous communities for a long time. That has changed over the past 15 or 20 years, but it still is very much in the model of let's work together, as opposed to what do you want to know mm-hmm. as the Indigenous community? And can archaeology help you with those things that you want to know? For me, it also means supporting Indigenous rights to their own cultural heritage, So working to change policy and practice so that Indigenous peoples are actually the the stewards of their own pasts. Mm. So I would really love to see archaeology shift towards supporting Indigenous sovereignty over cultural heritage and support Indigenous interests in what we might want to talk about in terms of our own history. And this is partly why I've been working a lot with my own Métis community to tell our story through the archeological materials that our ancestors have left in the ground. And that really is a place where I learn a lot about my own family and my own history um, and can see how it helps my community to reconnect and to assert our own rights as well. I'm curious, have you seen this relationship maybe change at all over the course of the last year? Has there been movement? I think there has been, I mean, this movement has been going on for some time, sort of a gradual pace of change and more archaeologists working with communities. But what I have seen over the past year that is different is you have more Indigenous communities reaching out to archaeologists because we may have done work like this before, may have some familiarity with the technology and certainly have familiarity with how to design an approach to something like this. So all the different things to consider. Um, and having Indigenous communities reach out to archaeologists for that support and guidance really is a shift that I think we've really started to see more clearly over this past year, both in Canada and other places like the United States as well. So it's been one year now. What are you thinking about as as we hit
0: this anniversary? What's on your mind?
2: Oh, many things are on my mind. But I think what is top of mind to me is it's been a year and we have really barely begun this is a process that could take a decade. And that is with a very well-funded, well-organized, well-resourced uh, set of you know communities and experts alongside them. And I hope that everyone listening and, and everyone across these lands we call Canada recognizes that this is not something that will be solved easily or quickly and needs constant attention and resourcing. So not to let it fall out of our gaze and our vision, but to really think about this as what is needed over the longer term to support communities so they don't feel rushed to do this extremely important work and are provided with the people who can really help them do it using the best possible methods. Keisha, it's been so good to, to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: We're going to leave you today with sounds from To Come to Shrek. They gathered earlier this week to commemorate the people in these unmarked graves and the survivors. And they're playing drums that Norman Ritaskett made for them. Thanks for listening to The Decibel. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Prosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pichenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you Monday.